If you would take your Bible and open to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. If you're looking at the blue pew Bibles in front of you, you'll find that passage on page 927. As you turn there, let me say, church, that I have missed you. I've missed, I've really missed this and being with you the last few weeks. Thank you so much for all your prayers, your love, your support for me and my family through the passing of my mother. I have, I have a newfound sympathy for those who must walk through sorrow and loss without what I have. You, my church family. I'm so grateful for you. Since watching my mother pass, I have naturally been thinking a lot about my life, about what life is. Anyone who has witnessed the death of a loved one knows that the end of another's life can bring real clarity or real questions to how you yourself are spending your life. Sitting next to my mom, I pictured myself on my deathbed one day. And then rewound the tape back to now, wondering if on that future day, I will consider these present days well spent. For a child, the life of adulthood holds out the promise of making your own choices. For the late teenager and early adult, life can kind of morph into an agonizing litany of choices. And a time when you come to realize that to choose one path is to not choose another. For the middle-aged, life begins to be choices for others. Dependent parents, spouses, children, employees. For the older, life seems to become a period where you live in the implications of your previous choices. And most choices now you make are made with the interest of others in view. Of course, there are many people who don't fit into any of those categories. Who live through all those stages and choice is a luxury they rarely, if ever, know. At the end of our lives, lived from one choice to another. Is there any choice we make that will matter most? So maybe you choose the wrong career path when it's all said and done. But it's okay for you because you know you still made this more important choice. And can people with little opportunity to choose much in their life still make this most important choice? If we knew there was a most important choice, surely that must matter. Not just for our last day on our deathbed, but for every day we live up until then. My aim this morning as we open up God's word together is to persuade us all to see that there is one choice we will make in this life that will matter most. Who we worship. Who we worship. To convince you of this, we'll follow the argument scripture makes in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, all the way through the end of chapter 19, which will, and this will be my outline as we go through this large section of scripture. Here it is. Three observations. One, everybody is worshiping. Everybody is worshiping. Two. And what will be my longest point, the way we worship. And then thirdly, why our worship matters. Why our worship matters. First, everyone is, everybody is worshiping. Let's begin there. We have been studying through the book of Acts for large parts of this year. We re-enter our study here in Acts 18.24 as the Apostle Paul and crew are taking the gospel to people in regions that have not yet heard the news that God is saving people through Jesus Christ. 
Paul's travels take him to the major Grecian city of Ephesus, though currently, as we find it, under the rule of Rome. Our passage occurs entirely in Ephesus, following the ministry of Apollos, chapter 18, verse 24 to 28, Paul, chapter 19, verse 1 through 22, and then a riot. That breaks out in the city in response to Paul's teaching. Chapter 19, verse 23 to 41. I chose to take this section as a unit because it's all happening in Ephesus. That seems to be a part of the author Luke's thought process in giving this narrative and these events together. And while we could have taken little sections at a time, and each paragraph might have yielded Various takeaways and lessons and nuances that I will not possibly be able to cover this morning. The whole thing seems focused on the contrast between types of worship. As if Luke the author wants us to notice that everyone here in this picture, in this city, is worshiping. But worshiping different things. Which will then lead to different outcomes in their lives and throughout the city. Let me show you what I mean. Through the contrast of two men in this passage, Apollos and Demetrius. Let's first look at chapter 18, 24, and 25, and Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Then let's look at Demetrius in chapter 19, verse 23 to 27. Still in Ephesus, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Notice that both these men, Apollos and Demetrius, have lives and life direction that has been set by what they worship. Apollos desires to follow the way of the Lord. He is fervent in this pursuit and so makes decisions accordingly. To learn, to preach, to travel, to teach others about Jesus. Demetrius is a worshiper too, a representative example of the citizens of Ephesus and even the rest of Asia who set his path according to the worship of the pagan goddess Artemis. His speech to the silversmith guild appeals to action to set Artemis's worship above all other things. So in a moment, we're going to evaluate the different ways of worship Presented to us by these men and others in the passage. But for now, just simply notice. Everyone is worshiping. Every single person in this passage fits that description. Demetrius says even that everyone in Asia is committing their lives to worshiping Artemis. In fact, I hope we will see this morning that we are worshipers too. What does it mean? What does it mean to be a worshiper? I'm not asking what does worship look like. That's point number two. I'm asking what is worship? What does it mean when we say we are that? People who do that. So often that word stays within the walls of religious buildings and gatherings. Many times Christian conversations about the music we sing on Sunday is the rare occasion in which this word even comes up. Meanwhile, our atheist or materialist or secular friends 
view this word worship merely as the superstitious ritual practices aimed at made up deities, not something they themselves are ever engaged in. But both perspectives miss that worshiper is something we're all created to be. And worshiping is something we're all actively doing all the time. We are created beings. We are not creators. And whoever created us has built in us an awareness, no matter how much we might try to suppress it, that our lives are greater than ourselves and our purpose is for something more than ourselves. We are made to live in a reality where we appreciate and love the one who gives us life. Worship is the decision we all make to value something more than anything else. And that decision practically determines the direction and often the outcome of our lives. And each of us is hardwired for that. We are made with hearts and minds and bodies that have been given the capacity to evaluate and to choose how we will live, what we will live for, and why. Now, I realize, I realize that my atheist friend, and if you are actively a committed atheist this morning, and you're here, I want to commend you for being willing to come to a Christian worship service. Thank you. I hope this is useful to you. I'd love to hear how you think and and what it is that you believe. And I'd love to talk to you more about what we believe and what the Bible teaches. If that's you, then you're probably sitting here arguing with, with my claims and my Christian presupposition that there is a God who made everything. And my claim, and scriptures claim that God who made us put his image on us He's given us as human beings value and worth. You might say, I just simply don't believe that. And so I disagree with you that I am a worshiper. Okay. But let me still invite you to not shut off. Listen and consider. And I would say stay tuned especially through point two. The author uses even non-Christian examples to prove his point that we are all worshipers. You can believe in a Greek God. You can believe in no God for that matter and still be making choices and value judgments about what is most important to live for. I wonder if you won't hear this morning even your own way of worship described as we go along. Of course, the argument of scripture And of God who made us is that we not only worship, but in our worship, the object of our worship is always personal. It's always personal. To engage in worship is ultimately to value a person more than any other. Be it the God of the Bible, a Greek God, or even yourself. Everyone in this passage has this in common. Take a moment and consider all that. Take your life decision so far. Or the ones that that you've been thinking about needing to make. Or that are right in front of you that, that you will make soon. Take the choices you made even this week. If you stood here and walked us through those things. Who would you want us to know that you've made those decisions for? Who do you value so highly that you organize your life around them? This may sound very extreme to you. But whoever that person is, that is who you, that is who I, that is who we are worshiping. That is the difference. That is the person who is effectively determining the way of their life. That is the person they're holding up that sets the course of what they value. And you may be aware of that, or you may not. Which is why I invite us all to just take a moment and think about it. If everyone is worshiping someone, then how is it that we go about this worship as worshipers? Well, let's look to our second observation from our text. 
the way we worship. Like I said at the beginning, this is my longest point. I intend for this section to be a diagnostic help to us. Not only for us to learn how worship happens, but to examine how we ourselves are engaged in worshiping. And I'm going to list three ways this passage shows us we worship. Three ways we worship. And I think, as you'll see, I think this passage is intending us for to see, like, at times we worship this way, then at other times we worship this way. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think actually we're meant to be persuaded that we're doing all three of these things all the time. So first, we guard who we worship. We guard who we worship. We worship by guarding what is valuable to us, in other words. Let's look again at Demetrius and company in chapter 19, verse 25. Demetrius, 25, gathered together the craftsmen with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. What is Demetrius guarding? What is he trying to protect? It's hard to say, right? It seems like he wants to protect his lucrative job, really. And when you think about who that benefits, you might say he's trying to guard himself. It is often the case that we value money because of how it serves us. Be careful to use personal security, even financial security, As the thing that determines the direction of your life. Money will have no answer for you when you cry out to it for help when you suffer. Money will not hear you when your loved ones walk through pain. Money will not be waiting at your death. Offering you a way to live because you served it. When it comes to what matters most. There really is no such thing as financial security. Which should indicate that guarding money is not the best way to worship. Now cleverly, Demetrius knows not not everyone in this picture is going to make bank from the sale of silver idols in Ephesus. So he appeals to the crowd's desire to guard the reputation of their city. Status. If Artemis' worship goes down so too will the regional reputation of all these people. So beware, friends. Beware the people in our culture who seek to gain from you by enticing you to protect what they know you are afraid of losing. They often have something to gain from that. But what about the contrast? Apollos, what is he guarding? Let's go back to chapter 18 and read verse 26 to 28. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. Showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Well, Apollos is clearly not guarding himself. How do we know? Well, given the cost to life and limb incurred by others in Acts already, we know Apollos is probably risking personal harm by publicly preaching about Jesus. He's also not guarding his own pride. Here he is a young, zealous man. This guy knew a couple of things, we're told. He could talk circles around others about the Bible. But when an older, wiser couple, Priscilla and Aquila, gently sit him down and teach him, he receives it. 
He changes his way of thinking and speaking in light of instruction in the way of God that he has received from someone else. Pride is self-worship. And it shows in an unwillingness to listen humbly to wise counsel. Brothers and sisters who would help you or I see better the things of God. Humility is Jesus worship. And it shows that we consider Christ and his way better than our own. Remember, remember, Jesus' call to follow him requires that we stop trying to protect our own way. If our main motivation in what we do is to guard our comfort, protect our reputation, ensure our security, we are going to be working at cross purposes to the way Jesus intends to lead us in our lives. Apollos is guarding Christ's witness as the thing he wants most from his life. As we make decisions throughout our lives, ask the Holy Spirit to help you make decisions in order to protect Christ's honor. Through your life. So choose a job and a lifestyle you want to use to serve Jesus instead of valuing praise or success or security. Choose a spouse in order that you might give your life to show Christ's love to another, not to fulfill you and your desires. Choose to be single. So that you can have more time for other kingdom work God has given for you to do. Choose to treat your family as those who deserve your service. Instead of demanding their service of you. Choose how you navigate relationships with love and truth. Instead of simply maintaining surface acquaintances to keep up appearances. The choice to live as a follower of Jesus Christ is a choice that leads to pooling all of who we are for the advancement of the glory of Jesus Christ in all parts of our lives. Christian worship is so much more than how much money we give to the church or how good we feel about God when we sing praise songs. It is whole life direction to make sure that in our words and in our actions, Jesus is being accurately and honorably portrayed. Apollos' humility is so noteworthy here that I think it should be a major takeaway for us. Do you carry around a defensiveness that means no one can teach you anything? What would you say that says you value? Do your children, your spouses, your co-workers, your employees under your leadership, your friends ever hear you admit you were wrong without them having to bring it up to you first? The obvious difference between Demetrius' God and Apollos' God Is that apparently Artemis needs the help and the protection of people. But Jesus does not. But Jesus does invite us to treasure what he and love has shared with us. The gospel. That is what Apollos is seeking to do. And I pray that's what we aim to do church. We really don't need to be defensive about much in our lives individually. If anything. We need to be more humble. Because we are not what's most valuable. Jesus is. And he can defend himself. And if we need defending, Jesus can do that too. As you watch Apollos being put to fruitful use in God's kingdom, see what great purpose your life can have when you make Christ's praise your way of worship. That's always an opportunity for you as a member of this church. Always. You may feel that your relative contributions are small, but trust me, if you are worshiping Christ in your life, you will greatly serve this body. So if everyone is worshiping this way, what are you guarding? 
second way of worship this text reveals to us is that we believe who we worship. We believe who we worship. Listen as Luke gives us a contrast between two groups in Ephesus. Twelve men that Paul encounters and then a great mob that Demetrius gathers. Let's look first at those twelve men in chapter 19 verse 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after me. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. As the, as the gospel spreads into this new territory, people's prior conceptions about who Jesus was were confronted. These 12 men apparently did not yet have the whole story about Jesus or what he had done. They were still operating in a kind of pre-gospel way. Understanding, yes, that they were sinners, knowing that they needed to repent, as John the Baptist had said, but not knowing fully how to be freed and cleansed and indwelt by the Spirit of God. So when they hear how that can happen through the true gospel given by Paul, they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And they take the obedient step of baptism in his name. Afterwards, as we've seen throughout Acts, the spiritual gifts become confirmation that salvation had truly come to this previously ungospeled area. Now, their decision to believe what they heard about Jesus is set in contrast to that other group we read just then. In verse 8 and 9, people who hear and refuse to believe. It's also set in distinction to the gathered mob in chapter 19. Turn over there to verse 28. So Demetrius and company have been successful. They've stirred up effectively a riot. And this is what happens. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, as we're noticing the contrast, notice how absolutely different the tone of each gathering is. Paul's meeting with the 12 happens through reasoned, respectful conversation, seeking to align thinking around One standard, God's revelation through Jesus. When a person disagrees with what Paul preached, Paul simply moves on to those who will listen. But in the theater, there's total chaos. There's no unity of mind, no external standard that is drawing them together. Thousands of people shouting, though not about the same thing. No one is allowed to explain themselves. Not even the people who have wrongfully been lumped in with Paul, but don't want to be, like Alexander. Not even he can speak. This is not a gathering about the substance of the issue. Demetrius has already dismissed that earlier in verse 26. Had this been an examined review of truth and what should be believed, Paul would have been welcome to come. 
and discuss what he'd been preaching all over Asia. There would have been an open opportunity for him to say what he had been saying, that silver idols cast by human hands are incapable of doing anything remotely godlike. So why couldn't that happen? Well, because the crowd and those responsible for it had already decided what they wanted to believe. It did not matter if it made sense. Nothing will shape the direction and outcome of your worship and therefore your life like the decision you make when choosing what to believe and to believe in. Do not choose to believe a version of truth because simply so many other people say it's true. Believe instead what is true, even if no one you know does. And if your next question that I'm hopefully anticipating in your mind is, well, how do I know what's true? Well, I think you've already begun to understand why worshiping the God who has all truth is the way for you to go. Church, please, let's look at the riot in Ephesus and together agree that we want no part in a Christianized form of that in our public square. Let us not add our voices to the incoherent screaming on social media that parades as evangelical. Or be the people who initiate conversations with our families this holiday season about how wrong everyone who disagrees with us is. If we believe in Jesus, if we trust in him with all parts of our lives, our main desire will be to keep trusting him. And our main hope is that God would enable us with Christian, truly Christ-like testimony to help others come to trust him too. I do think this passage shows us that true Christianity is going to be a benefit to the order and peace of a society. And false truth and false teaching of false truth propped up as unquestioningly true will have the opposite effect. I'm sad to say that there is and will continue to be a societal consequence in our city and our country and our world because of the cultural lies that are being unquestioningly believed. What are we to do? We pray for God to act in mercy To rescue people from their blindness, their confusion, and the traps of the lies they're believing. And the animosity toward Christians who suggest like we do and believe like we do that there is only one truth. That may very well keep increasing. But even if our truth, God's truth given to us in Christ Jesus by his grace of no work that we've done given through the cross of Jesus and his glorious resurrection, which imparts to us a new spiritual understanding by which we can understand realities that we would have never conceived of on our own. If that isn't appreciated, even if the popular consensus is that to believe the gospel is to believe a message of bigotry and hatred, you, Christian, being a humble, peaceable Quietly serving citizen that seeks the good of others is how you can go on loving a world that may hate you. In the end, Paul's testimony did more for the good of Ephesus than did the massive riot. Don't underestimate what God can do in this world when Jesus' followers example their lives after Christ instead of worldly alternatives. I suppose the Ephesian rioters felt that the only way to get the outcome they wanted was to flex their power because that was the kind of God they believed in. One that needed her worshipers to do her work for her. A God who can't act to protect their own honor against the itinerant preaching ministry of a tent maker. Is that a God that this mob should have been calling great? If we have to do the work in order to receive the reward of worshiping someone or something, we need another way of worship. We need another who 
to worship. A great and powerful and living and active God. Worship him. So if everyone is worshiping with their, with their belief, who are you believing in? Third, diagnostic help about our way of worship that we find here. We fear who we worship. We fear who we worship. The mob we just read chants in unison for two hours. Can you imagine being at Arrowhead Stadium where the energy and enthusiasm is so great that the crowd keeps a chant going for two hours? That's crazy. This crowd that won't listen to anyone, though, does get quiet for one person. And this one guy convinces them not only to stop shouting, but to go home. Look at chapter 19, verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? I think that's like an asteroid or meteorite or something that that had come, they discovered. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What do you think it is that this clerk appeals to that effectively silences and sends home the crowd? Is it what he starts with that it's just evident that Artemis is great? Or is it the mention of the Roman government? The crowd listened to the clerk because this man represented Rome and every person in that theater feared Rome. Rome could send troops Rome held the power of the courts and the law. And no matter how loud they shouted, the mob knew that they had no power like Rome's. While they had set out to exalt this supposed god Artemis, their cheers finally fall silent under a force they fear more than Artemis. They believe in Rome more than Artemis. Their practical allegiance was to Rome, more to their fellow tradesmen, more to their shared deity. So when it comes to what we say we value, our words are only part of the proof. When threats and hardships and consequences arise against us for who we say we worship, that is when our real real heart values will show. If the mob valued Artemis over all, would they have been so easily silenced? And if they didn't, what did they value more? Well, I think their own well-being. They feared that the Roman government could punish, could harm, could even kill. They valued their ability to keep living above all. Notice that God is showing common grace to Ephesus through the Roman government here. Even as he often does through our government. God uses man's fear of punishment from civic authority to restrain them from acting violently toward others. This is just one of the many ways we can thank God when authority is used for his purposes. The Ephesian mob feared men more powerful than them, those who could bring real repercussions to their life. Ironically, in the end, their God worship, as loud as they shouted, proves to be less important than their man worship. There's another type of kind of fear-driven worship in this passage. A more positive one. Look at chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. 
And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, And overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them. And found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Multiples of millions in our current day. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Ironically, people learn to fear God through high priests who don't respect Jesus and a demon that does. Like the 12 men earlier, Paul knew Jesus Paul had the Holy Spirit within him because of God's saving of his soul. Paul spoke the name of Christ as one who by Christ had been personally authorized to do so and to speak with power. These priests don't know Jesus. They don't have his spirit. And they're basically just simply trying to claim his authority anyway. They wanted the power of Jesus without being obedient to Jesus. But you see what happens with that. And the contrast between Paul and the priest shows us that you don't just need to know Jesus' name to live in his power. You need to know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, this will mean your response will be to give him worship. The fear that motivated the mob to go home was just the fear of repercussions. But the fear that draws the people that believe here and repent and burn their valuable occultic books, that is a fear of reverence, of awe. They witness for themselves that there is no God like Jesus. There is no other who the demons dread. There is not another being whose spoken word makes miracles. The Ephesian magicians turned Christians had tried themselves and tried more to find the magical words to perform the impossible. And now they had found them. But it wasn't a word that came from their mouth. It was a word from God, from his messenger's mouth. Telling them that they needed to repent of their false worship to a false God. And believe in and follow the true and living son of God, Jesus Christ. True worship to Jesus is more than occasionally or regularly invoking Jesus' name when we're in trouble. In God's eyes, the worship that identifies us as one of his is the kind of belief in him that leads to a total change in what we value. Even though their magic books were their most valuable possessions, they throw their collective millions into the fire because their reverence is now for Christ and him alone. I think when we first encounter Christ, and this might describe you, maybe you're just beginning to understand who he is. I think when we first understand that we deserve judgment for our sins against Jesus, I I think often we, our first inclination and response to Jesus is to fear his judgment. Perhaps that's where you are. Maybe you are just afraid of dying and going to hell. You should fear that. You should fear the holiness of a God who will use his power to punish sin. But know that there's more to understand. Jesus actually came, not 
sitting on his throne waiting for the day when he would wipe us out. He came. He came in humility and sacrifice made like us. He came to die to take that judgment that you and I deserve. He came to use his power, not in wielding a scepter, but here on earth being led to a cross. To die to defeat death and sin for us. Jesus offers you life through his resurrection from the grave. When you believe in that death that he died for you to take away your punishment. When you believe in that resurrection life he lives so that you might have life in his name. Fear of death where you started your relationship with Jesus begins to change into a new kind of fear. A love and an awe and a reverence for Jesus who did all this to save you. Church, don't we want to see God's word run like it does in verse 20? Verse 20, chapter 18, we're told. Is it, sorry, 19. So the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. We pray for fruit from the preaching. We pray for fruit from our gospel evangelism. We pray for our children to believe in Jesus. And verse 20 shows that our believing and repenting example, much like these believers who confessed and followed Jesus with their lives, that will be part of the catalyst by which God spreads his word and power among us. When other people witness our lives lived in worship to Jesus, when we are giving up what is valuable to us before we knew Christ for the greater treasure we now have found in Jesus, that is when the power of God's life-changing word goes public on display through the picture of our lives of worship. So yes, share the gospel of Jesus with our words and don't go silent, but demonstrate what worship to Jesus looks like. With our lives too. If everyone is a worshiper. And we're fearing what we worship. What or who do you fear? Finally and very briefly. Third. Why worship matters. Why worship matters. Everyone is worshiping. Including us. And each of us is guarding and believing and fearing what we worship. But why does it matter? Why would I say at the beginning of this sermon that what you choose to worship is the most important choice you and I will make with our lives? Well, it matters because there is only one God who can save us. The people in Ephesus, all of them, have major issues they cannot overcome on their own. Apollos had blind spots that needed correction. The 12 men needed truth. The priest needed to know the real God. The demon-possessed man needed a miracle. The magic community needed the word of God to change what they valued. Demetrius needed security. The mob in their confusion needed a better God than Artemis to lead them. And the subdued riot needed an authority beyond themselves to subdue their raging. With all these issues that are common to us all. Only some of the people here who have needs receive what they truly need. Apollos gets discipleship to Jesus. The 12 men and the other converts get saved. What do they know that the others don't? They know Jesus Christ. The only living God. Demetrius worships the God of money. The crowd worships the fake truth, false god Artemis. The crowd fears the power of Rome. And in return, at the end of this passage, they are no better for any of their trouble. The world is lost in meaningless, futile worship, which will bring a judgment of its own. It will bring greed. It will bring confusion. It will bring no shortage of power struggles. But there is a greater judgment coming for anyone who refuses whole life worship to the only God who is alive and worthy to receive it. The one who has made you and me and is worthy of that kind of response from us.
But look in this passage what a difference Jesus brings to the life of his worshipers. You get to know him. You get to be changed by God. You get to experience his power effective in your life. You get to walk out of your bondage that enslaves you. You get to be used by him to spread his wonderful salvation message. You get to live under his good authority with no ultimate fear of any other lesser power, human or spiritual. Remember, church, there is no power or promise in money or people or governments that can do what Jesus has done for us. Guard his gospel. Believe in him. And live in repenting and believing fear. Make this most important choice. Worship Christ alone. Let's pray. Holy, mighty, living God. You are God alone. And you have revealed yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. And by your spirit, we can see him and know him. Thank you for your grace. Before you, we confess our worship of that which we seek to guard before you, of those we choose to believe above you, and that which we fear more than we revere you. God, in your kindness, reveal all our idols. Refine them away. So that we might live for what you created us for. For you. To be used for that most wonderful purpose. To glorify you. And to show Christ to others. Lord please by your spirit take your word and plant it in us. That we would consider these things. Long after this gathering is done. And that you by your grace which we so need to make it. That we all would make the choice to worship you and worship you alone. For surely you are worthy. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.